Good morning. Isn't it a beautiful day? Nice light breeze, sunny, some high clouds just to keep it, you know, reasonable. So we're thankful that God has really smiled on us this morning with some excellent weather. And I, would you just give the worship team a big hand for all of their work and preparation? A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite Christian authors, and he is well known for making the following statement. He says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about God. How do you imagine him? How do you imagine that he feels about you? There are some common notions or maybe misnotions of God that people hold about him. Some that he is simply a harsh judge. Or a God who is distant and aloof, seemingly indifferent to the world's pains and struggles. Some feel that he is simply a strict rule giver and a tough taskmaster. Others might hold that he's just kind of a cosmic killjoy. If it's fun, God must be against it. Others may feel that he seems like an impersonal power force. But what comes to your mind when you think about God? How do you imagine him? And how do you imagine he feels about you? After Tozer's sort of introductory remark there, he goes on in his little book, an excellent book, The Knowledge of the Holy, and he discusses more than a dozen attributes about God or things we know to be true about God, and particularly as we see those from the scriptures. This morning, I want to just focus on one of those attributes, and that is the love of God, particularly the love that God has for you and for me and for everyone, and for each one. Our world is desperately longing to be loved and looking for love wherever it may be found, wherever it may be felt, wherever it may be experienced. The world is constantly trying to find love, define love, or even redefine love. You can just look at the popular songs on the music charts, love songs and breakup songs. We can see the proliferation of dating apps and even hookup sites. Romantic comedies and romance reality TV shows dominate. Social debate rages about the subject of who we can love and how. So in order to even speak about the love of God, I feel I have to differentiate God's love from the love that mankind has for one another. Our love for one another is imperfect. But God's love is perfect. Our love is self-seeking, but God's love is self-giving. Our love tends to be conditional, but God's love is absolutely unconditional. There is nothing we can do to earn or deserve it. Our love, human love, can best be described as intense affection, but the love that God has is described throughout the scriptures using a word that is full of richness and depth. It is the Hebrew word chesed. And you gotta spit a little bit to say it right, chesed. It's an Old Testament word, a Hebrew word, 
and it's best defined as loyal love. It's unfailing love. It's covenant love. Hesed love is love that's dependable even when we're despicable. It is affection, but more than affections, it's love that doesn't fail to act. Hesed love, God's love, is love that faithfully acts for the good of the other person. It feels, it faithfully acts, and it faithfully acts for our good. My friends, in a word, in a word, hesed love could be described as steadfast. Steadfast. And God is not just capable of this kind of love. It's not just a kind of love that he might access or could access if he desired to. It is the love that he has for you right now. Right now. I think there's four ways that we can know that God loves us. There's many more, of course, but this morning I'm just going to highlight four, four ways that you can be assured that God loves you. The first is this, that God made you, that you're here, that you exist because you were created. Of all of the creatures that God could have made, of all of the beings that God could have made, God chose to carefully design and intricately make you. In the creative thought of God, he imagined you and thought you a worthwhile being to create. Of all of the creative imagination of God, when he conceived of you, he delighted in you. He got excited about you, and he saw you as a being he wanted to bring into existence. He wanted you for himself. He wanted to see this creation come to be. In fact, this is sort of a creative process that all artists and creators go through. There is this idea, this concept, and then this excitement, and then the actual creation. And the Bible consistently reveals God as the creator of all things, of all that exists. Nothing exists except that God has made it. And I think sometimes that point can cause us to feel sort of insignificant or small or unimportant. Kind of just one more of the many structures in this cookie-cutter creation. We can think of God sort of like a general contractor who oversees the development of a massive subdivision with hundreds, even thousands of homes, all of them a little bit similar. But in contrast to that, the Bible presents God more as a craftsman who is passionate over the finished work, pouring over the minute details of grain and joint and finish. The picture given of God's creation of you is intimate creation, personal creation, one who is closely involved in our design and making. Psalm 139 exhibits this. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. My friends, your, all in all, your existence is not just the result of some random chance, arbitrary germination, or haphazard consequence. You were personally, 
intricately and attentively designed by God, fashioned by God, because he desired that you exist. And this speaks of God's personal love for us. As God conceived of all of creation, he wanted you in it, and he made you for his own delight. So you can be assured that God loves you, number one, because God has made you. Secondly, you can be assured that God loves you because of what God made for you. And I'm speaking here, of course, of the created world, as we look around and see all the treasures and delights that God has made. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The point there is that creation itself points to a loving God. And friends, I want you just to think, just put your imagination on for a moment here. Think of all of the beauty and the pleasure that God has embedded into this world that we get to live in. And much of it is actually unnecessary. Think of the intricacy and the uniqueness of a snowflake. No two alike. Hope it's not too soon to mention a snowflake. Think of the beauty of a robin's song early in the morning, singing over her two little blue eggs in the nest. Or the sweetness or the savory flavor of food. The brilliance of color. The power of music. A speckled, detailed rainbow trout hiding in a stream only to be lifted out by an angler with a fresh brush of color on its side. The sound of a trickling brook, the pleasure and comfort of a hug, the fragrance of a flower or cut grass or brewed coffee, praise God for coffee, the warmth of the sun, the coolness of night, the refreshment of rain, stars we can see and galaxies we wonder about because of them. Elizabeth Barrett Browning says it well in her poem. She says, earth is crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Consider all of the beauty, all of the delight and pleasure that God has stitched into this creation that he has made for our enjoyment. Earth could have been engineered really just as a, a functional factory operating on pure mechanics. And thankfully, there are some good mechanics going on, right? Like gravity holding us to this earth that is spinning predictably and orbiting around the sun at just the right distance. We're glad for those mechanics. But this world is also an amusement park for the senses, filled with goodness and delight and pleasure. So we know that God loves us because we've been made. We know that God loves us because we look around and we see what he's made for us. And thirdly, we can be assured of God's love because his love is unchanging. So some of you might say, okay, Eric, I think I agree with you on the, the first two points. Those seem to point to the loving nature of God. Uh, this world is wonderful. I'm glad God made me. There's plenty of pleasure and beauty and delight. But just because God loved me once doesn't mean that God loves me still. Or that, I think, is our uneasy conscience. And you might be sitting there saying, I have a past. I've got history. 
I have a record of disobedience, which is sure to disappoint God. My browser history is shameful. I've actually been arrested. Nobody knows this. I drink too much. My language is foul. My thoughts are disgraceful. I've been dishonest. I've been unfaithful. I've been divorced. I've had an abortion. I've skimmed the till at work. I've even evaded taxes. I have not loved God nor my neighbor as I ought to have. And I think when we consider these things, it does give us sort of an uneasy conscience. And this reminds me of Israel in the book of Lamentations at the end, the last chapter, the final verses, when Babylon comes in and lays waste to the city of Jerusalem and destroys the temple, Israel cries out to God in distress. They say, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. They know it. They know their track record. Because of this, our hearts grow faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. And then their prayer, restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. The book of Lamentations ends on this minor dissonant chord of Concern and insecurity and wondering, does God still love us? Does he still love me? Can he after my known disobedience? And the answer wonderfully in scripture is absolutely yes. We speculate this because we project upon God love that is like our love, fickle and conditional. We wonder if we've stepped too far away, if we've committed an unforgivable sin. We wonder if I've done something so egregious God couldn't possibly Forgive me. And the scripture is full of the answer to that question, which is absolutely not. The Bible describes God love for e- God's love for each person of his creation as loyal and unfailing. Romans 8, 37 and 38 says, For I am, not con- I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love, thankfully, is much greater than mankind's love. Our recently departed pastor and theologian, Tim Keller, has described our longings for love this way. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved, that is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. To be fully known and to be truly loved. Friends, God, he could not love you any more or any less than he does right now this moment. His love is perfect. His love is steady. His love is loyal. His love is covenantal. He loves you as much on your worst day as on your best day. A fallen priest and restored Christian, Vernon Manning, once said, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by God and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. 
This truth, I think, is so hard for us to believe. I mean, we even see evidence of this in the scripture. In the Psalms, the psalmist is composing musical worship for Israel. And in Psalm 136, 26 times does the psalmist write into the worship song, His love endures forever. You thought modern worship choruses were repetitive. (laughs) 26 times was that phrase stitched into their song. So much do we need to believe it, so hard for it is for us to accept. This is a picture of his steadfast love. And thankfully, those of us who live on this side of the cross have an advantage, over, I think, over those who loved God before us. Because we have the radical event of the cross to confirm it. And that brings us to our final point. We can be assured that God loves us, one, because he made us, two, because of what he's made for us, three, because his love is unconditional, and most demonstrably, because in love he died for us. Or let me say it differently, in love he died for you. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for the ungodly, not for the good, for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This past week, probably many of you, like me, were sort of fixed on the story of this small submarine the Titan, with five uh, members aboard that went down to the ocean floor to, explain, or to explore the Titanic. This little sub quickly lost contact uh, with the tethering ship, and a distress call was put out. This story is still being researched and written about, and we don't know um, all of the details yet. But what we do know is that the rescue attempt to go and retrieve this sub and the inhabitants was slow to launch, cumbersome, and people were reluctant. And in the end, the five people inside of the Titan perished. And time will tell whether or, or not this was a re, an immediate action or immediate uh, something that happened, or if it could have been prevented by a quick response. But my friends, this story stands in stark contrast to the rescue story we call the gospel. The difference is this, God was not reluctant to come to our rescue. He did not delay, but at just the right time, he enthusiastically sent his own son to die in our place, to die for our sins that we might find forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 says this, all of us lived according, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest We were by nature deserving of wrath. That's our default position. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. My friends, God launched a rescue mission for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to take your sins into himself and to kill them at the cross and to transfer his righteousness to us that we could be reconciled to God. But we have to lay hold of this. 
We have to accept this and appropriate it into our life through repentance and through faith. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now this morning in a very memorable setting and a perfect day, no day like right now. If you need to be reconciled to God and receive his forgiveness, then I would beg of you this morning, I'm going to lead us in a prayer that would invite you to repent of your sin and trust Christ as your Savior that you could be reconciled to God. And if that's your desire, if you'd bow your heads now, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I'd ask you just to quietly uh, pray it back to the Lord right where you are. Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you for the assurance of your love. I recognize that I am a sinner like each one here. Father, thank you for sending your Son who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who died in my place, whose righteousness is imputed to me, transferred to me, offering me forgiveness with the Father. Lord, I repent of my sins. I receive Christ as my Savior, the substitute sacrifice, taking my place. I want to live for you now. Lord, I want to be a Christian. Come into my life. Make me your child. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.